today we're very fortunate enough to be joined by uh, Peter Matthews, who is president of the uh, Real Estate Institute of New South Wales. And what do you do at Realtair at the moment? I'm the CEO and co-founder. CEO and co-founder of Realtair. Um, mate, do you want to give us a bit of a rundown and the viewers a bit of a rundown from a pretty much a life story and background of yourself from the point that you've finished high school up until now? Yeah, sure. Um, how long have we got? <laughs> <laughs> so here I am. Um, so I, I grew up in, um, in, in Epping. Um, it's not far from where you oh, trade, right? Yep. And uh, I actually, it, I, I did a couple of things to do work experience. And actually one of those was chiropractic. Um, and also I decided that I'd go and do real estate, right? Chiropractic, I kind of worked out I wasn't going to do that um, because uh, the, the day that I had to put my hands on, a, on, a, on, a, on another human being and, and all the rest of it, I went, yeah, that's not, not my thing, right? So I decided pretty quickly that was not for me. Um, I went into the real estate, um, went into a real estate office, I was in uh, Balmain with Rain and Horn back in those days. And I had two weeks, and this is 1988, you, you blokes probably weren't even born then, right? <laughs> so, but in 1988, um, it was basically the, the middle of probably one of the biggest booms that the country had ever seen. And property prices literally were sort of moving every single day, much very similar to what we've had just recently. But, you know, contracts being signed on the front of cars and all those sort of things, it was just, it was just crazy. Interest rates were going through the roof. It was double-digit interest rates, and people were just buying, buying, buying. And... Um, Anyway, of course, so, you know, as a, as a what was I, 16 back in those days, and I'm traveling around with these guys with flash cars, and mm. they didn't seem to do too much, right? Um, you know, they just took a buy through, and that buyer would buy. And I, of course, that was my first impression, so I thought, this is for me. So I then um, spent that two, that two weeks, I then spent another two weeks in my school holidays, I went back to that business, and I, I worked for free, just so I could kind of make sure, and I could learn the trade. And then I decided, um, that I, when I, in my, I went through to year 12 and um, I finished up um, doing the HSC. Lucky for me, I'd, I'd already had a job. I wrote 65 letters to auctioneers, values and estate agents. I got 12 replies on one interview. Wow. Um, so I did my best with that interview and that happened to be with Ray White Corporate at the time. Ray White had only just moved down into New South Wales from Queensland. Uh, they, they, were, they were probably a very clear, probably you know, fourth or fifth in the city market at that time. And I joined as the office assistant, but that just gave me an, an entry into the real estate space. And working there was, I was so lucky, I didn't realise it at the time, but you know, to be able to work with you know, great people who are working in the corporate environment, who are growing the Ray White brand, but also to being able to engage with franchisees and salespeople and kind of get to, without being in the thick of it every day, just get a little bit of a, a lick of everything that kind of happens in the real estate space. And that's kind of how my career started off. Nice. And how long were you, did you end up jumping into sales after that corporate role? Yeah. So, the, the, and when I say corporate role, my title was office junior, which I hated with a passion, <laughs> right? I hated it. But I was really lucky in the first six months, a vacancy came up to be an auction coordinator, which back in those days was, you know, we just had a red book where we just put all the auction bookings in. We had in-room auctions, which uh, was in the city, plus the auctioneer at the time, who's one of my mentors who's passed on now, a guy called Tony Fountain. Um, you know, I got to watch him and observe him, and that's probably where my interest in auctioneering came from. Um, but in there too, I was very lucky. They had courses there because they were the corporate office, all the courses were held there. So I did the same course every month for 12 months. And oh, um, it was great. It was all about sales. It was three days. It was called the Accelerated Training Program. Talked about everything from prospecting, presenting, servicing, negotiating, selling, and you know, just um, focusing on the whole real estate space. So I did that, and at the end of 12 months, I got pulled aside by the directors um, of Ray White at the time, and I, I thought I was in trouble. And they pulled me into the room, and I said, listen, um, we think it's time for you to go out into the marketplace. And I went, well, that's terrific. And they said, so we've got a couple of options for you. I went, okay. One's Wagga, and the other one's Bankstown, right? Oh. Keeping in mind, I lived in Epping. So I'm kind of going, Wagga and Bankstown, um, both of them weren't really markets that kind of, I thought, fitted my demographic. Um, I wanted to go to Wagga because I thought, if I'm going to get out of my comfort zone, I might as well go to the country. I'm not yeah. a country guy at all. As it turned out, the guy that owned that business just wanted me to be in property management, not in sales. And it wasn't really my sort of ambition to go into that career area. Um, and then the guy in Bankstown said, yeah, put me, put me into sales straight away. So the, the day that I went to Bankstown, which was... 
there was a day that I started, I'd never been there before, oh, wow. and I, I had a patch in Yaguna, and um, Yaguna, Birong, Sefton, and that was, that was my marketplace, and, and that was probably one of the, um, I'm so grateful for that, because it was such a highly multicultural marketplace, and it just, I think, really shaped the way that I, I learned how to communicate with a whole range of different people from different backgrounds. Yeah, it's what, what would you say was the biggest learning being with such a diverse multicultural background? I think it's just like, um, you know, the thing is, if, if, if I, I think if I went and worked, say, in the Crow's Nest Marketplace, which, you know, at the very time, at that time, was you know, very much an Anglo-Saxon Aussie marketplace, like, I probably would have felt, um, you know, a little bit more comfortable, but I wouldn't have learned half as much. Because, you know, you look at all the different cultures, you've not only got people coming from different backgrounds and, and you know, coming from different worlds, they've got different religious beliefs and all those sort of things as well. So you kind of have to, you have to understand all of that and you have to understand it pretty quickly. And, you know, I was like a sponge, so I just observed as much as I could and I, just, I basically just did what I was told. I, I, I had a very, very strict prospecting um, regime, which was exactly what I was taught to do in that, in that um, accelerated training program. But the thing I really um, enjoyed is, is, is just learning so much about the people and, and their culture because that helped me. I learned, well, if, if I understand them better, I've got a better chance of being able to list their properties as well as be able to sell them properties and be able to participate in the negotiation better than, um, you know, than what I would have, I think, if I'd have gone to something that I was more comfortable with. And you were touching on prospecting in that, I guess, snippet there. What would you say was been the biggest thing that helped you prospect that back then versus you know, developing your career to a later stage? Oh, um, my desperate need to earn income. <laughs> <laughs> that, was the, that was the main thing. Like, I, I, I was, you can imagine, I'm a 19-year-old. You know, I was 19 thinking I was like 35. <laughs> I, um, and this is going to, so here's, here's a, so mobile phones just came out, right? I bought a second-hand mobile phone and a car kit for two and a half thousand dollars back then right so this is this is 1991 mm. uh, not yeah 1992 i think it was anyway but in the 90s very early 90s and um no one else had mobile phones so it was a bit of a luxury really i i and it was very expensive to run but the thing the thing that kept me going i guess is is all is i, I was just i was very regimented because i was told this is what you need to do i kind of figured pretty early that there isn't this treasure chest of um, real estate secrets. And if you go and search for the key and you find it, and you unlock that, the money will just come. It's, it's actually really easy. Like the treasure chest is open and it says, you just spend a lot of time talking to people, you build relationships, which means that you need to prospect. And of course, when you're 19 in a new market, I didn't have any relationships. I didn't have any connections or personal contacts to take advantage of. So I did the sim simple things. I did 25 door knocks a day. I did, 100 and, um, I did 125 telemarket calls a week. I did um, 500 letterbox drops a week. And, and in the days that I got, or the weeks that I got really, really busy, um, you know, I, I did 125 door knocks in a day. Now, th this is, you know, some of these frontages are like 20 metres, right? So mm. <laughs> I'd, I'd be exhausted. But, you know, yeah, as you guys would know, right, when you're out in the field, you see more and you learn more. And, like, you never, ever see more than when you, when you get out and about and you, and you walk around your marketplace. If you think that you can know your patch by driving around, you, you really need to just, you know, stop, park the car, go for a stroll, and you'll see things that you never saw before. And, you, you know, you have engagements with people that, in some ways, and sometimes you probably like to forget. <laughs> I had people answer the door without clothes on. I got chased by dogs. You know, I had all these different things. I'd, I'd tread in dog poo nearly every single time, right? And I'd have to be wiping it off somewhere. But I also got to meet some amazing people. And probably my best experience was when I door knocked this property. I'll, I'll never forget the address, 50 Rangers Road in, um, in Yaguna. It was a lady, Mrs. Patterson. And, you know, as you guys will know, you, you, you have someone who's elderly, she lived in the house by herself. She didn't have any family. In fact, she was estranged from all her family. Um, you know, she didn't talk to anyone. And, you know, she, I turn up and I knock on the door and she decided that she'd talk to me about everything, right? A lot of talking. A lot of talk, you know. I had, I don't know, it was 45 minutes or an hour. I'm not too sure, but I, I tried everything to 
end the conversation, even starting to walk back down the steps backwards so I could get moving right. And she's following you down. She the is, mate. She is. She was following me. And anyway, so I had that conversation. I then I followed it up probably for a couple of months. And then, you know, then the phone didn't just rang out or the rest of it didn't hear anything. And then I get this, um, oh, probably a couple months later, I get a, a referral from a solicitor. Um, it was like Connor & Co. was the company. And they said, oh, we've got a, a listing referral for you. And I went, oh, that's pretty cool. It's my first one, right? Mm. And um, I would have, maybe I just turned 20, maybe, I'm not sure. And uh, they didn't actually have a referral for me. I was in the will. Oh, so are you serious? That time that I spent with her, and look, that was never my intention yeah. or expectation at all. Mm. Um, but I was put in the will. And that, that just really struck me because it gives me goosebumps actually thinking about it now. Mm. But you know that... Um, you know, and it's, it's much deeper than the real estate space, right? You know, the deep sort of psychology of, you know, us as humans, you know, you want to engage with people. And it had been obviously such a long period of time since you'd engaged with someone and just that someone was prepared to listen and to hear, you know, from her and engage with her was enough that she, you know, put me in a wheel to sell it's it. big time. Yeah, which was Jeez. really humbling, to be honest. Yeah, I bet. Particularly at that young age as well. I bet. Now, did you stay at Ray White Bankstown or did you end up moving to a different office? No, look, I, and I, look, the thing is, I, I, it, they were, again, I'm going to keep saying the same thing and probably repeating myself on the best years like that. It was a great foundation for me, but it wasn't, as you guys would know, you, you, when you want to be in a marketplace. I always had this thing where I thought I want to be where I, a marketplace with high transactions. I want to be a marketplace um, that I enjoy and a marketplace that isn't too far away from my family. Yeah. And I... You know, Bankstown was never going to be the end game for me. So I, in those days, needed two years' experience before you get your real estate license. I was studying at TAFE with, for my license. But driving from Epping to Bankstown and doing prezos at like 9 o'clock at night and all that kind of stuff was just, it just was too hard for me to keep up the TAFE side. So once I got my two years, um, and I was very grateful for the business owner who, who trained me. He was, he was a great guy by the name of Peter Hall, terrific uh, principal, such a great leader. Um, you know, I then went and did my real estate course at Hawkesbury. So I could do that, you know, in, yeah, three months and I could do an intensive course. I got my stock license as well. Um, and then when I did that, I actually then went back to the place that I started, which was um, Rain Horn Balmain. So I went there for um, um, straight after I did the, I did TAFE. And I wasn't really there for that long, to be honest. I was only there for another couple of years because then Ray White Corporate, who sent me to Bankstown in the first place, said, listen, we've got this gig where we want someone to do training and do recruitment of salespeople in offices for the group. And, um, you know, I really, um, I really loved the idea of that because I was just so lucky to learn so early. And um, so I took that job. And that's, okay. that's kind of how I got back into the corporate scene. Okay. And then from there until Realtor, were you just purely business development manager? Or? No, no, geez. This, no, again, I'm worried about time here. Um, <laughs> you guys might want to bunk in. Um, so I then got offered a gig um, from New South Wales, Railway Corporate to New Zealand. So my wife and I moved to New Zealand. Yeah, so we were geez. in Auckland for two years. What was that like? That was unreal. Mm. Um, I mean, Auckland, the, the thing about, so you... At the time, the average sort of um, real estate business had maybe four or five salespeople. So when you turn up to a zone training, um, you know, you might have 30 people that turn up. Over there, you've got real estate businesses where the average might be like 25 to 30. Mm. So I turned up to my first zone training over there and there's like 200 people. And I'm thinking, wow, this is crazy. Uh, very different style um, in terms of um, the way that they transact real estate's the same, but you know they're very different to us. They weren't very auction orientated. I'd, I'd, I'd started calling auctions at that stage and I got, I got pretty good at it. So I, I was the chief auctioneer over there for that time. I was also the 2IC, so my role there was, you know, I guess corporate um, development, so to build the network, recruit officers, um, do training, do all that kind of stuff. And again, I, I was really fortunate because who gets to experience a whole new market in a different country um, and be able to take the great stuff that, you, that they don't do in New Zealand from Australia and bring it over mm -hmm. and kind of and train that through, For but sure. then also take what they do that we don't do and bring it back, which was, it was a great luxury. Um, but those gigs don't always last forever. So that, that was, again, wasn't that long. And just, I came back to Australia, in, uh, I think it was 2000 at that stage. And then I, I um, bought into a partnership um, which was a Ray White business. It was down, it was in Eastwood. So it was kind of back in my core market. Um, like most partnerships, or not most, I should say some, I got into that really easy. It was hard to get out of. Um, yeah. But 
um, you know, it was very, it was a good experience. And I think really for the two of us, the partner that I went into business with, you know, it was probably just the timing wasn't right for both of us. But then I set up my own shop, um, which was in Epping. So that's where I grew up. Uh, that business still exists today with the partners that I partnered with then. Wow. Um, and that was really great because that was kind of, it was like a, I felt like I was a bit of a coming home, you know, like I knew people I went to school with, um, you know, selling um, my mate's parents' properties and things like that. And that was terrific. But then the same thing happened a few years later where I got a call from Brian White and he said, look, you know, we're looking at making some changes in here. We want a COO in New South Wales. Um, we'd like to talk about coming back. So that took me away from the business. I held my shares in that for some time. And then I went back into Ray White Corporate as a COO and I was doing that for oh, about five or six years. And um, then I was sort of in my uh, mid thirties at that stage. And then I um, bought into Ray White's number two business, which was at the time Ray White Neutral Bay. Mm. So that's when I went to the, the Lower North Shore of Sydney. We then opened up Mossman office. We opened up Crow's Nest office. We, so we had three locations, we had 55 staff, we managed about 1,250 properties. Um, and I, I got in at a point where we were a single office, we only managed about 500 properties or so. And it was great, it was such a great foundation with such terrific people, salespeople, um, administrative teams. I've, I've got some great friendships still today from that business. Mm -hmm. And we grew that. Um, and then we sold that to the agency, um, which is now trading in the same location. And, yeah, crazy. Yeah. What a whirlwind. Yeah, yeah. And what brought on the idea about Realtor? And can you give us, uh, give our viewers a bit of an idea who haven't heard of Realtor yet? I'm sure most would have, but a bit of a snapshot what Realtor is and how that came about. Yeah, so, so Realtor was, you know, can you imagine if you, you're in the industry for a really long time, I, I was trying to find ways where I could bring technology into my world. Even when I was at Rain and Horn, you know, when I worked there, not as the, as the uh, sort of cadet in uh, work experience, I remember I bought, a, I bought a laptop thinking, I'm gonna do everything on a laptop. Wow. I paid like five grand for that back, this is like back in, um, I don't know when it Gee. was, probably in the 90, late 90s. Paid a fortune for it. But of course, because it couldn't talk to anything, <laughs> the internet hadn't been invented at that stage either. Um, it was really just a, a bit of a desktop publishing thing, but you know, we had dot matrix printers, so I needed my own printer and you can never do anything on scale. So I've always been interested in technology and you know, whenever the iPhones came out, I got the first iPhone when it came out, I've still got that. I had to have it unlocked because I bought it from the US. You remember? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you guys wouldn't know that yeah. either, crikey. Yeah. But um, <laughs> um, so I was always into that. Anyway, so the, the, the reason why Realtor started is because we, we, had, this, we had this three office um, network, right? So a network within a network. Um, we were trading pretty big volumes. We had um, prestige property right down to sort of our apartment market. Um, we managed a lot of properties as well. And, and you, I just sort of look at it all and you go, so, so here we are trying to, we open up these new businesses, but we have to replicate the same structure that we had in Neutral Bay in each of these other businesses. I thought that just doesn't make sense, you know, like even right down to phone systems. So with the Mossman office, when we opened that, we, we just put uh, desks, um, we had no phones in there, we had um, like mini computer terminals and we had a, um, a photocopier and literally that was it. In fact, the most expensive part of that renovation was these flash doors that we got, um, which are still there today. But the thing was, is that that was a bit of an experiment. You know, can we provide a place for salespeople to just connect into? And that probably was a little bit of ahead of its time. Um, you know, obviously I do it very differently now, but still the concept was there. And then what, what was happening though, is that because all our resources were in the hub in Neutral Bay, all the salespeople wanted to come back into the hub yeah. because that's where they could get access to the services. So I'm looking at all these different software programs and going, there's so much great tech around there, but nothing that ties it all together. Mm. So anyway, we, um, we sat down, we documented all our processes because we thought first before we decide to, because we said, look, let's maybe we should go and do our own thing, right? And I've got no experience with tech. Um, I'm not a techie. I'm only just wearing the shoes of a tech guy, right? Because I'm slowly trying to get myself in there. Um, but um, we decided to document everything that we did because we kind of figured, let's look at everything we do now. And you know, that, the business that I'd bought into had been trading uh, as Ray White for 40 years. So I was a COO for that, a CEO for that business for around about 12 years. And this is towards the end um, of that uh, before we sold the business. And probably about two or three years before that I, we kind of came up with it. And we documented everything, and the view of that was to say, what can we um, automate with technology? 
What can we offshore? So what does not need to be done here, but needs to be done by a human? And what needs to be done here by a human? And, and what was really interesting is that um, the, the guy that I worked with that helped me pull all this together, I remember saying to him, because yeah, I had it all laid out and you could see, you know, we then sorted it by all those categories and all that kind of stuff. And, and it just wasn't really clear to me. Mm. And I said, can you just put a color in each of the cells that says automated offshore here? And the automated was green. I can't remember what the other colors were. Um, and they did the sort and it was green, like so green. And I just went, okay. All right, so we're doing this. So then um, we went and um, we brought some partners into it. We, we all sort of put in our own um, sweat, our own sweat uh, capital, put it all in, started building it. And of course, when you build it, it slowly builds out. And then now we've got um, the same guy that helped me do the spreadsheets, our CTO, he's one of our co-founders. He was 17 when I met him. 17? Yeah. yeah. Don't worry, it was like, um, when, he, when he got introduced, it was like, really? I don't know, I don't know. Yeah. But he's been amazing. He's uh, basically the architect of the whole platform. We now have, we've got an offshore operation, um, which is, we've got about 135 people. So we've incorporated in the Philippines. So we have our own company, employ our own people. Wow. Um, we've got a full infrastructure over there. So we've got finance and uh, HR and everything else. We had our own premises, obviously with COVID now, we've let those premises go. We're actually going to a shared office environment, which is good because some of our people had to travel a long time to get to work. In Australia, we've got about another 30 people now. Um, you know, we serve about eight and a half to 9,000 agents across the country. Um, and it's been really, I mean, for me, sort of having, I guess, the vision of saying, well, how can we help agents remove a lot of the things that either one, they're not good at, or two, they just don't like doing, mm. that where they would traditionally go, okay, I've got all those things, so now what I'm gonna do, I'm gonna go and hire a 65, 75, 85,000 little resource to do that. And based on the, you know, the percentages that agents earn, you know, they've got to earn you know, twice that in some instances to make that worthwhile, mm. and then more revenue again to actually make it profitable. Mm. And so I, I guess that's where I feel really proud of what we've achieved. We've allowed agents to be able to do the things that they need to do without having to employ resources or make those resources that they employ um, into more productive revenue generating resources. Um, and I think over time, the more that we can, and our lens is very clear in terms of, you know, what, what, what do we do next? And we'd say, you know, if Kevin's at, a, at the dining table, what can we do to enhance that um, relationship between the agent and the seller at the dining table? What can, create, what can we create that removes a pain point that, um, that you would have to say do at that presentation or post that presentation? What can we take away from you to make that easier? Mm. Give you back time so that you can then decide what you do with that time, invest that into driving you know, more property sales or put that into your own personal time um, and equally to obviously provide you with the efficiency that you need and hopefully that that'll convert into you know, profitability because you are able to do more. Oh, mate, I, I love this system. I would use it every single day, so I can attest for it. Um, and you've also now taken up a new role a couple of weeks ago as the Real Estate Institute of New South Wales president. Um, can you give us a, a bit of an idea of what you're doing there and, and, and what you're asked to do? Yeah, that's a, it's a, look, it's, it's a, it's a big role, but it's, I feel like I've been preparing it for a while. Leanne Pilkington, who did an incredible job as president, um, particularly probably the most trying times I think our industry has seen since I've been around, um, has steered the, the industry and the institute, I think, just superbly. She's got a great team in Tim and Kibben, the CEO. Um, we've got a terrific um, legal team, a marketing team. We've got a great general management as well as uh, all our administrative resources there. Um, I've been fortunate enough to be able to sit in the wings as all that's taken place. Leanne's held the reins for four years. I've been on the board for eight years. Um, and I was a bit nervous taking over from Leanne. Um, number one, she's much more glittery and has got much better style than I have. Um, but two, she's done such a superb job. Um, you know, it's, a, it's big shoes to fill. But the, the role of, I guess, the REI is to be representative of the industry, and that's at a whole range of levels. Um, it is at the agent level, representing the agents, um, including property managers and, and administrators and everything. Um, it's representative of I guess the industry to the consumer. 
and it's also representative of the industry at a government level. And a lot of the stuff that the REI has done, and we've debated this a lot, is you know it's a lot of stuff that's unseen. So it is like you might have the government um, might say, well, look, you know, we've got to solve this problem on the consumer side when it comes to real estate. So you have these people who are all well-intentioned in, in, in government who say, we're going to write this legislation that'll force agents to do this, and then that should solve the problem here. And then they will then engage with the institute, will then put submissions forward, and we will say, you know, why that's a good idea or it's not. And if it's not a good idea, um, this is why. Or if it is a good idea, but it's not um, practical, these are the things that we suggest that you do. And um, the reason why we've got to get probably a little bit better in communicating what it is we do is because a lot of people don't know that that's what we do. Mm. There's a lot of time that goes into that because you can imagine um, in like legal speak, you have an and or an or in the wrong place, or you have a process that somebody writes, you know, sort of at a desk, but it doesn't actually work practically out in the field and take auctions as an example. There was this view well, do auctioneers need to be licensed? And you kind of go, well, what's the purpose of a license of an auctioneer? Well, a license is there so you know that somebody's qualified to do the job. There's the first thing. The second thing that comes with licenses is insurance. Um, so let's just take those two points. So if someone's not educated for the role and they're not insured for the role, is that good for the industry? No. Is that good for the consumer? Well, no. Why would we do that? And so what might have been, I'm not even sure what the the impetus of that was to consider that from government's level, but it came to us and we said, well, let's talk about why we should even do this because here are two ba very major things that would be, that would impact that decision. And they didn't proceed with it. So um, our engagement with government's a massive part of it. Um, we also provide um, forms, so all the legal forms that you sign, so agency agreements and all that kind of stuff. We work with the law society around contracts and all those sorts of things. Um, we obviously do training, um, CPDs as well as non-CPD training. Um, we provide, um, I guess, all members with everything they need to operate their business from a legislative requirement as well as, you know, even operationally things that they need to do. Like just recently, the government came out with the supervision guidelines. That was a huge um, change internally for businesses. It was a very costly thing for businesses to go through. It would have been much more expensive and much more time consuming if the Institute didn't put all that together and then take it out um, via all the roadshows, talk about what it is, um, so how to do it, what it is, how to do it, when to do it, why to do it, and then provide all the backup information and details for businesses to put all that into place. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of that stuff that goes on in the Institute. I'm, I'm very fortunate to be, I might be the, I guess the vocal point of that process, and there's a lot of work that goes into it. Yeah. Uh, by some really talented people. It, it sounds like the role should be titled firefighter. Because it just, it, <laughs> yeah. All you're doing is putting out fires. Yeah, yeah. I'd, I'd like to, it's, it's a good point because you kind of, you, you, you become, you react to the situations that occur mm. and we've been very good at doing that and we're, we're getting, we've refined it, I think, to a, a great art where something happens, we're onto it in a flash. And then we communicate that out to the network or the members, I should say. I think the, the point that we're at now, one of the things that I want to be changing is that if you're, you're in your marketplace and you're a great example, you're somebody sitting there who is in a marketplace serving your customers, you've got a database, let's assume you've got a thousand people. Like if there's an issue that comes up, take stamp duty reforms as an example. What if the Institute has a view because we might survey the members, we then take that view, we put, we put that to government and say, this is, this is the position of the industry. They, they're interested in that, but what they're more interested in is, you know, what do the people think? And, you know, the people in their mind, when you take it from fair trading and, and you know, the, I guess those that write the legislation, take it up to the next level where it's at a ministerial level, we're talking about politics, where what, do, what does that, those constituents, so no longer your customers, but their constituents within an electoral area, what do they actually think about that issue? Well, how do we know anything about that? I think that what we've got to do as an industry um, body is better collaborate so that you're always looking for good content to give to your customers, right? Mm. We can provide you with that content, but also ask for something in return. What do they think about these issues? That information can come back to you, so you could use that as part of your marketing. Mm. comes back to us at an aggregated level, mm. and then what we can do is go to government and say, hey, this is what the people of the Hill Shire mm. think of this issue. So that those politicians that are posturing as to whether they support those reforms or they don't, mm. if they're 
constituents in that electoral area support reforms, it's going to have an influence on their view. And I think that as an industry, if we can collaborate that way, then what we can do is, is better articulate what those issues are and then make sure that we can um, present those to government via the REI so that we can create positive change. So it sounds like agents should be a bit more proactive and, and vocal about what, what they're seeing out in the field as well. Yeah, I think it's, it's yeah, definitely do that. And it's, it's out of curiosity. Yeah. What do my customers think? Yeah. And, and look, to be honest, when I was selling, I wasn't thinking about any political issues mm. at all. Um, I'm even surprised that I, I do watch ABC now, right? <laughs> That's what my folks and my grandparents used to do, um, which is a statement of my age. But um, I, I'm, I'm very interested in that because I can see the influence that we can have if we can um, collaborate better and communicate better. Mm. And you look at it and you say, so... If, if it is that there's stamp duty reforms, it affects every single agent and every single consumer that's in that space. So if we can have some kind of influence over whatever that issue is by understanding specifically what you know, all our customers think, because we might find that our view is wrong. You know, it might be perceptually, as agents, we have a view, but our consumers think it's Completely the opposite. Yeah. You know, we need to know that. And I think my, my whole philosophy has always been to be curious. You know, if you're not asking questions and you, you don't want to delve further into something, then you're obviously not interested enough. Mm. And really it's the only way to actually, um, I guess, understand issues is to be super curious about it. For sure. And so you've experienced a whole, pretty much every facet of, of the real estate industry, right from the bottom up into the top. Where do you see agents go wrong? Or where, where do you think the main issues lie on agents gaining a big momentum and big success? What, do you, what are the biggest pitfalls? Uh, okay, so I think one of the biggest pitfalls is, um, is believing social media. Mm. Um, I think that that creates... Well, I think what it does is that it creates an, an unfair um, impression of what success is. Mm. Like, I, I, I did this... I just, I just get aggravated by it now, where I see, you know, we sold $50 million worth of property. Mm. What, do you reckon a consumer actually goes, oh, 50 million, that's great. <laughs> they go, oh, sounds like a lot. Is it a lot? I'm not sure if it is a lot. Yeah, yeah they so, don't understand. Did they do that all themselves? Did they do that through their business? They don't, they don't understand. Mm. We understand, and we sit there and go, you know, that's, that's a lot of transactions, right? Mm. Um, and then I guess it's then the, that everything that then spins off that where we get this perception created of us as, as agents. And I guess that's the thing that I, I, I don't know that I've got any direct influence on changing. I just think that what, what, what is more important, mm. the important thing that we provide is we provide a service to people. Mm. We provide a service um, that, that is based around shelter, right? Mm. And as you guys would know, when you go, when you go and buy a property for someone, like this is a massive thing in this person's life. Mm. When you sell a property for someone, it is huge. It's probably a once or twice in a lifetime, particularly based on stamp duty, which incidentally has gone up 47% this year from last year. Uh, we just did a... Uh, yeah, that's a, crazy uh, The real week ahead. Wow. Is that right? Yeah, it's crazy. For, for what, what could be um, 70,000 less transactions. So the government revenue is, is quite strong in that area. So I think stamp duty reform is going to be very, very hard to mm. wrangle off the government. But... But so it's very expensive, it's very stressful, it creates a lot of anxiety and everything else. Like, you know, if, if you sell 20 homes in a month, what you've done is that you've actually connected um, 40 people. You have solved the problem for 40 people that, you know, if they, they're all gonna be satisfied with that result because selling a property is, is, a, is a challenge. It's not liquid, it takes a long time. Buying a property is fraught with a whole range of different things. Mm -hmm competition, not understanding how it works properly. I mean, imagine being a first home buyer in the last two years, like it would have been like a bit of potluck, right? Yeah. You would just happen to be lucky or you, you know, right place, right time, you know, same sort of thing. Yeah. So I think the thing like that, just be conscious of what it is that we're actually trying to betray because consumers don't understand our, our, our lingo and our rhetoric. Mm. So bringing it back down to what, what does a buyer think about the experience of of a property being sold or a seller think about the experience of a buyer buying a property and how can we more directly relate that at a human level mm -hmm. because I think otherwise what we do is we just get assessed on we're doing it for the money because everything that we emulate in social media relates to the financial return of that 
um, of that service. It's yeah. so true, isn't it? Pretty much all yeah. the posts you see is about your GCI, company yeah. sales. Well, all the yeah. awards are done on that too, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and, and I do um, understand that you know, you've got to have a, a direct level of measurement, but I think we do need to get better as an industry. You look, there was a survey just recently done about agents and, and, and ethics and where we, where we sit. Um, you know, we were um, two from the bottom. Um, and you go, you know, that's terrible. Like, I think we were like five from the bottom last year. So it's got worse, right? And, and look, my experience is every time the market runs, the perception of agents gets worse because there's, you know, we, we get sort of, there's a lot more sort of people who get upset because they miss out on properties and, and they want to look to us to, to blame us for that reason. And I think that we're certainly, we've got some responsibility in that area, but I do think there's probably better ways for us to be able to deal with, um, with buyers in that process, but that's probably a podcast for another yeah. day. Yeah, that's true. And I, I guess you've, you're obviously a buyer in the market and you've bought and sold properties before, and you've obviously seen it happen throughout your business too. Where do you think, where do you think buyers go wrong in this market? Um, I, I don't know if buyers go wrong, um, I would say that, that buyers, we, we've got a problem, right? Always. We go, a seller wants the most that they can get. Buyer wants to buy it for as cheap as they can. Mm. So buyers, I think, probably need to spend as much time as they possibly can researching, mm. but not over-researching. You over-research and you'll never buy anything. Um, understanding that if they're going to go and buy something for, like it's a, it's a first home purchase, how long am I going to stay there for? Like for me, um, I've always had the view that if I buy anything and I'm going to trade it inside of five years, there's risk, right? Obviously, the closer I get to five years, that, that, that risk mitigates. But if it's outside of five years, mm. it doesn't really matter. You know, I've, I've bought properties I still own today and I think I should have bought a thousand of them back then. But at the time, I'm going... What should I do? But I always took the view, five years or more, um, just don't sweat it too much. And I guess um, that's one thing. The second thing is, um, I mean, you look at buyer's agents coming into the, into the space. Um, buyer's agents, I've seen the evolution of buyer's agents from you know, where it was, I guess, when, when they first came in, there was a little bit of uncertainty as how it would work with agents, where now it's an accepted part of, of what agency practice is, your own licensing requirements now and things like that. I think that that's also an area that if you don't have experience in that, it's you would you engage a professional, right? Um, because if you can do that for, for the cost of doing that, it's just a cost of acquisition. It's the same as like stamp duty is a cost of acquisition. Unfortunately, you don't get any value out of stamp duty directly, right? But you do out of, out of the buyer's agents. And I think also too is that um, you know you've then got you've got that choice to engage with somebody like yourself or you can go and try and do it on your own. So the more time that you can spend researching, but just get to a point where you make a decision. If you've been looking for, I was talking to someone the other day, I always ask people after they buy an auction or how long you've been looking for. And I could see the market was starting to run because all these people were looking for less than three months. All of them, like in the lead up to how, and then it just started to take off. And all these people that have been looking for a year that, oh, it's too much, it's too much, got left behind. Mm. And you know, the thing about property, you're just gonna make decisions. And even in a declining market, it doesn't matter. Again, it's a five-year rule that always comes into play. Mm. It doesn't matter if it goes down an extra 50, because if you're gonna be there in five years time or seven to 10 years time when I talk to these buyers, so the, the rule of thumb is property prices in Sydney double every 10 years, right? Mm. So even if the market's falling and it drops by 50 grand, if you're buying that million dollar house, as crazy as it seems, it's probably gonna be $2 million in 10 years time, oh. which it's is mental. Yeah, it is. But I've been saying that since it was like 250 grand. Yeah, I know. It's never going to be you've a million dollars. And so now it's crazy, like 5 yeah. million. And you go, yeah. wow. If I, I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be sitting here. If, in fact, you'd be interviewing me on my private jet if I'd have bought every <laughs> single listing that I've ever had. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it is. You're right. It just it equalizes itself with time. Yeah. So just on that, what does success look like for you now? And has that changed since you've been growing up in, in the real estate space? Uh, for me, personally, or yeah. for, for agents? For you personally. Um, uh, that's a good question. I'm, I'm not sure. Like, I get people who say to me all the time, oh, look, you must be really proud of what you've done with what we've done with Realtor. Hey, look, I am. But I think the thing is, is that, you know, it's, it's okay to, be, to feel like you've, you've, you've created something and be, be happy with that. But I think that the main driver for success is, is this um, relative dissatisfaction. Um, where I say to our team all the time, 
we so we launched something, right? We've got some stuff coming out next year. We were talking about this earlier, right? And I said to our team, I said, so this is great. It's really, really good. And we should be proud of what we have done today with an ambition to be embarrassed about what we've done today, tomorrow. Because what we've got to do is just continually, continually get better. One, one thing I've learned about technology particularly, and an agency practice is the same. If, if, and I remember um, actually, so this is one of the first trainers who did that course, Miff Porter from Ray White, she uh, has this quote which I've used in a few presentations, if you always do what you've always done, you'll always get what you've always had. Mm. So you're going to be doing something different, you're going to change, you're going to evolve. And so I think particularly with technology, if you accept that what you've got is good, that's the day that you are dead. Mm. So you've got to accept that what you're doing is going to be evolutionary better, evolutionary better, just a little bit by a little bit by a little bit. Take the feedback, listen to that, um, you know, document it, um, build it, test it, deploy it. Like the same thing applies in real estate. If, if you guys only did in your business today what I did when I was selling houses in Bankstown, it wouldn't be enough, right? Um, but when you look at the core philosophy of what we do, which is, you know, we ha it hasn't changed that you've got a prospect. It hasn't changed that you're presenting. It might change the way that you're presenting because you're presenting digitally now versus, um, you know, with bits of paper that are put together in a folder. I'm sure, yeah, good. Folder. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, we're not exchanging contracts these days on paper, you know, like, and you kind of go, so they're evolutionary things that make a difference. Then it's a case of what do you do with that? So um, if I was an agent today, if I'm using all these different pieces of technology, knowing that the industry is going through an evolutionary change of this where everybody's not doing it, I'd be looking at that as a marketing edge to say, you know, our business is a digital business. Well, what does that mean? It means that we can operate from anywhere, anytime. We are available. We can, we can make amendments to things really, really quickly. We, we did a rent roll transfer on, on Realtor Sign the other day. And it was so cool because I've bought and sold rent rolls. And as you guys know, you're going to get the agency agreements, you're going to sign them all, get them off to the landlord, the landlord then signs them, they then come back, then you've got to get it signed, off it goes again, everyone's got to get their copies. And how do you possibly give them a copy of what they've signed within 48 hours when you transfer a rent roll? We were able to do a transfer of a rent roll instantly. And, and even if there was some argy-bargy like there was on some of those um, agreements, the agent and the landlord could converse on the telephone, agree the position, amend the agency agreement, update it, they could sign it on the other end instantly. Mm. And you kind of look at that and you go, okay, there are things that we can do now, so how do we then market that? Mm. And then I guess as technology evolves, what are the next things that are the marketing edge? Um, and that's where I kind of have this, it's a long-winded way to answer your question on success, but. Um, I just think that it's all about incremental improvement. You don't have to make any major gains in a short period of time. It's just little bit by little bit by little bit by little bit and it all adds up after a year. Yeah. You have reached quite, uh, what I would say a big level of success in at multiple parts of your, your career where you've owned an office, you're a CEO and founder of a, of a prop tech company. Um, you're also the president of a governing body of, um, of the Real Estate Institute in New South Wales and multiple other different things. How do you think you achieved that? Was it your, your skill set better than everybody else? Is it hard work? What, what drew you to that level of success multiple I, times? I don't have anything that anybody else doesn't have. I, I, I have a, I think the thing, like you guys, right, you have first an interest mm. and then once you kind of find yourself in that, it becomes a passion. So then, I mean, my dad always said to me, oh, look, you know, you know, you never have to work a day if you love what you do, right? So um, I love what I do. There's been times I haven't loved it. I've got to be honest, when I first started selling even, I'd look at it and I'd think, you know, well, I'd, I'd still look at the paper. We had paper back in those days too, right? <laughs> you'd have a paper, you'd go through the job section and, and you'd see these sales rep jobs that have got a car and all this kind of stuff and you think, Maybe I could just do that. Then I don't actually have to do the hard grind. Mm. But then you do the hard grind, you get the benefit of that, you get the reward, and then you go, it is all worth it. And then once you kind of get into that groove, you, you just, you, you, feel, you feel yourself getting into that, into that, that momentum and everything becomes easier. Mm. And I think the thing is, I don't, I don't think that I had anything and I don't have anything that's exceptional. I have what everybody else has. I just have been very lucky to be able to find a career 
that suited me and I suited it, but also for me to be able to get to a point where, you know, I, I just, I fell in love with it. Um, and you know, love is not always constant, right? But it, it's, it, it can be deep and that's what I've been very fortunate to have here. And also to people, like I've met great people. I've had, I've been trained by great people um, to spend the time that I did in my early career with, with you know, Brian White and his father, Alan White, and then all the people that they employed in, in their business Guys like Brian Reed, who was the CEO, um, and Ian Campbell, who was the CEO of Ray White. There's a whole series of different people. Tony Fountain that I mentioned as an auctioneer. All those people have influenced my career. Um, you know, even when I went to New Zealand, I worked with a guy called Kerry Smith, who is an incredible leader of Ray White over there, taking them to the very, very top of, of, of market share from a relatively, you know, almost like a zero start, right? Mm. And you go, all of those people, you kind of hope that you have a little bit of them along the way. And it's just, for those people that you engage with, you learn from, a little bit of them kind of rubs off. And hopefully you make that your own and, you know, you forge your own path, but you put in the effort just like, you know, you guys do in your business and it will reap rewards. So it's, skill is kind of, I think it's overrated. Yep. You know, passion, enthusiasm, energy, effort and drive, they're the key things. But, you know, I guess um, everyone's got those. It's just making sure that you deploy them and deploy them regularly. Hundred um, percent. When you're obviously running at such a high pace and a high level, do you have any self-care measure, measures yourself that you do? Like, are you meditating, reading? Yeah, I meditate every day. Yeah, I'm not very flexible. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> um, look, the things for me, um, I, I I swim in the ocean, yeah. so I do that twice a week. So I, I get out of Manly. I do the bold and beautiful swim, which is you know from. Um, from Manly Beach to Shelley Beach and back. I do that every Friday. I do that every, every Wednesday, every Friday. Um, I've just bought a, a bike because my mates wanted me to get into cycling, so I've become a mammal. Um, I really dig that, actually, because you can ride next to someone, have a, have a chat, and you're actually getting a workout, which is great. But the thing I enjoy the most is the ocean swimming because, uh, one, I think salt's good for your soul. Um, the ocean is great because you know you've got this vast area which is a whole new world which is underwater and I've seen some incredible things from things that you know frighten the hell out of me like sharks to have you seen any sharks in yeah I've seen some sharks not, none that have been close enough um, but um, close enough that you go I wouldn't like them to turn around and sort of look at me and go mm, you look tasty um, but that, that kind of doesn't really bother me because I kind of figure that you know, if it's going to happen, it's going to happen. And they always say the shark that you see is not the one you want to worry about. It's the one that you don't see that you have to worry about. But it's, I think it's just also the fact that, you know, you've got your head down in there. I do my best thinking when I'm swimming. Anything with water, in fact, I do my best really? thinking when I'm in the shower, when I'm swimming, um, because you're just, you're just in this whole world of where you're in your own head. And I find that I've got much, much clearer thinking happening when I'm doing that than any time else. That's my absolute awesome. staple. Awesome. Um, one last question for me: What would be your number one advice for young agents that is new into their new into the industry? Okay. So for young agents that are uh, that are watching, I think the thing is is that um, your first ninety days in real estate are probably the most critical. Mm. Um, in the Realtor Academy, we just put together this ninety day program. So it's a three hour um, video and audio, and it basically takes everything that an agent should do in the first 90 days and, and from the before you start to your 90th day. And I guess I found that, um, as I said earlier, I did the same course 12 times, so every single month in a year before I went out in the field. So I had everything I needed. I, I'd internalized it all, I had practiced it. I mean, by the time I did the 12th um, training session, the same session, I knew what they were saying before they said it. And I guess the thing is that you want to make sure that you are prepared so you know what to do. It shouldn't be that any new agent sits there and says, what do I do today? Mm. Um, so I think that's really, really important. So get into, get into as much training as possible. And you know, we put that whole 90-day course together for that reason. The second thing is, is that you need to adopt technology. Um, the third thing is, is that you need to find a mentor because you need somebody that you can learn from that's willing to give you their time, that actually cares about your future. Um, if you don't have that, then it, it makes it very, very difficult because it means that you're, you know, you're kind of, you're, you're surfing, but you've got no fins. Mm. 
you know, you need to have um, somebody that's going to give you that direction um, and give you that support. And I think also too, you also need to find a, like a, you know, people that you can associate with that, that give you energy, not take it away. I've had people that I've associated with over the years that I've made the conscious decision to say, and I haven't told them that, um, but the conscious decision in my own mind to say that, um, that I, I, they, took, they took energy away from me. And you can't afford that because you've only got so much in the tank. And, you know, when you've got family and you've got, you know, a, a partner and everything else, and then you've got your work life, and then you've got your own life to live mm. you've only got so much to give and when people take that away they steal it from you. you you need to be amongst people who can actually give it give that energy back to you um and, and the final thing really is probably just to be absolutely curious you know and um i think the thing about our industry is is that as you guys prove youth mm. is so valuable and i think the thing that um i hated most about being you know you know quite involved in real estate at a very young age is that people would always talk about my potential and I hated that because I, I, I felt like the more they talked about potential, the more it actually said that I hadn't, I hadn't done anything. Mm. But, but then I look back on it now and I think then if, if I don't have potential, then I have no future. So I guess the thing is you always want to stretch yourself a little bit further. Like the fact that you guys are doing this and sharing your experiences and interviewing people like me and others, hopefully they'll, people will pick up some stuff. But like that's a great thing because it's a good learning thing for you guys. Great for you to be able to share that. Mm. And the ability to be able to be amongst a group of people that will collaborate with you um, and be able to learn from them very, very quickly and just absorb as much as you can. And then make decisions more importantly. Once you've got those learnings, what are you going to do? What things are you going to do? I remember James Tossum in the first session I went to with him. Um, I sat there. I was mesmerized by what he did. Like it was, I've written all these things down. I'm going, I'm, I'm, I'm doing this when I get back to the office, right? And then I went back to the office, um, got on the phones, got distracted, did all these things. It wasn't until I saw him the second time. And I heard him say this, which I'm sure he said the first time where he said, I'm going to tell you everything I do because I know that probably nearly every single one of you will do nothing about it. And I sat there the second time, went wrong, oh, I'll prove you wrong. So I, I decided then three things that I was going to do. Um, and I did one of them really, really well. And it made a big difference to my, um, to my sales career. So I guess take what you learn, but make the decision to actually deploy it. Mm. You know, don't just, I've been to that training session, I've, I've learned enough. I reckon if you, can, if you can learn everything from one conversation or one training session or one podcast or one book, um, and just reading it once, then you're kidding yourself. Like I listen to books two and three times because yeah. I just know that I'm not smart enough to absorb it all. So that's, that'd be my advice. Well, thank you so much. Mate, my last question for you, uh, what's your favorite or go-to drink in summer when you're not at work? Go-to drink? Well, I, I stopped drinking um, during COVID, which was um, hard. Yeah. And then the best thing that I ever did, um, I didn't stop drinking to give it up. But um, I just want to see that I could, because it was just, it, you know, when you're at home the whole time, it's just too easy mm. to pick up, um, you know, a beer Berries. or something like that. Yeah. I, don't, I don't really drink beer much anymore, but um, I, I'd probably get, I'd probably have a, um, a Captain Morgan's, I Captain think. Captain Morgan's? Yeah, yeah. Go, the eh? spiced rum. The spiced yeah. rum. And I discovered that, I'm ashamed to say, um, <laughs> after not drinking and not really wanting going back to beer, and they came out with this Captain Morgan's premix thing with, um, like, pineapple and doesn't taste like pineapple at all, but it actually tasted pretty good. But the only thing is, is it, it now doesn't taste like anything. It just tastes like a soft drink. Oh. Um, but yeah, that'd probably be my, my go-to drink, I think. <laughs> Legendary. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Peter, cool. thank you. Appreciate it. No, thanks, thanks guys. Mate, really appreciate you having me. Done. Awesome. Cheers. Thanks, mate. Mate, really appreciate Fantastic. it. Fantastic. You nailed that. That's awesome. Wow. Cool.